0: Jones, Australia's
1: leading voice.
0: Well, good evening and welcome again to ADH, the station of honest, open, and non woke opinion. I'm Alan Jones and we are ADH TV. Great program for you tonight. I think you'll be entertained and informed. Tomorrow is a national day of mourning. I'll be suggesting that we have a lot to mourn about, not just the passing of the Queen, but the way our country is being run. I'll go to Victoria tonight and the Liberal member for Q, Tim Smith. The only bloke to take bark off Daniel Andrews is headed for the exit door. And that's a metaphor of the appalling mess the Liberal Party is in. Some interesting observations read the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. And I will, of course, go to David Maddox in London, who's always at the centre of what's going on. And you can all get a university degree. You don't have to do anything. A Chinese company will do it all for you. It's called cheating. And Warren Mundine has a real shot at woke corporates. They brown nose themselves to government on everything. And now it's The Voice. None have the guts to stand in the ring and question, well, what is often? Government rubbish. Don't expect corporate Australia to lead the way to reform. And that's what we should be mourning tomorrow. I've spoken every day this week about the criminal justice system in Queensland. Well, now the stuff has hit the fan. As I warned it would. thousands of criminal cases have been affected by failure at the state-owned and run forensic laboratory that failed to test DNA samples on the false premise that they would not yield a result. In other words, in Queensland, they have been quote-unquote administering, to use that word loosely, a criminal justice system, but have been putting forward untrue statements about expert DNA evidence. Recommendations by Sofronoff KC, King's Council, include the recommendation that every witness statement issued since 2018, when samples were reported, as having insufficient or no DNA, be now identified by the laboratory without delay. This may mean the reopening of thousands of criminal cases. It's called government in Queensland. In WA, the extraordinary legal powers that allowed WA to close its borders and introduce some of the strongest pandemic measures in the world, they're going to disappear. Premier McGowan has said the state of emergency is going to be lifted after two and a half years. Will there ever be an appropriate and thorough investigation about whether these draconian and freedom-denying measures were legitimate? And Australia's oldest man, Frank Moore, has died in his sleep over the weekend at the home of his son on the New South Wales South Coast, where he'd been living following a fall. It said he died after contracting coronavirus. He turned 110 on August 15, having taken over as Australia's oldest man in July last year. His son said he went to have his afternoon nap on Saturday afternoon and never woke up. A fitting way to round out a full life, one of 10 children. His twin died at birth and his mother died when he was 12. He was made a ward of the state. But Frank Morwa had a wife of 70 years who died at 92. And by the time Frank died, his family had grown to 13 grandchildren, 21 great-grandchildren and two great-great-grandchildren. To use the words of Albert Facey, it sounds a fortunate life. You're watching ADH TV, plenty coming up. I'm Alan Jones. Tomorrow has been designated a national day of mourning, and this surely doesn't mean that we haven't been mourning as many of us have since September 8, 13 days ago, when we learned of the sad death of Queen Elizabeth. So I'm not sure what tomorrow is about, but I would have thought we could honour the passing of a woman who gave duty and service a new meaning and sacrificed for 70 years, many of the pleasures we take for granted, diving into a swimming pool, going to the beach, going shopping, going to the pictures or the theatre, none of that for her. Her life was one of service and duty through sacrifice. She was above all else a worker. And as I've said before, I would have thought we could best memorialise her tomorrow or on any day by rolling up our sleeves and getting to work, which our nation so desperately needs. So why not tomorrow, on a day of mourning, mourn a little for ourselves and the predicaments we face through the crises I've raised with you often on this program. We should mourn that that the energy crisis is the consequence of ideology prevailing over reality. We should mourn about an education crisis, which is denying our children access to the best works of our history. And then we should be mourning because of an economic crisis a consequence of the way our country has been run. Remember, politicians create the messes, but they're never here to clean them up. Indeed, there is no mess confronting Australia today that hasn't been created by politicians. So let's look at the economy. The Reserve Bank governor, who's been the architect of many of the problems we face with his stupid comments last year that interest rates might not rise until 2024, In order to recover his reputation, he spoke last week to the House of Representatives Standing Committee on Economics, having already announced the most aggressive series of interest rate rises since the 1990s. Before a grilling by the Parliamentary Committee, Lowe got on the front foot and the question of spending and debt. There was nothing particularly novel about what he said, but Dr Lowe did say that tax hikes could be part of the solution to yawning federal budget deficits, tax hikes. He was asked a question about the relationship between monetary policy, that is interest rates, and fiscal policy, which is the taxing and spending by government. Lowe gave a bit of a sermon, but what he said was accurate, that there are limited options available to cover the growing expense that the community seeks, that's us, for additional spending. And he alluded to, quote, five big growing areas of spending in the budget, which are creating pretty substantial structural concerns, unquote. Now, don't worry about the lingo. We should be in mourning as to what this means for our hip pocket. Consider the five areas, quote, big growing areas of spending, he said, health, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, aged care, defence and repaying our debt which is not a trillion dollars, I might add, as Treasurer Chalmers constantly argues. Just a word on that. When Labor's Wayne Wayne Swan was Treasurer, for him gross debt was irrelevant and only net debt figures were provided in the budget papers. Net debt is described by the Department of Finance as the sum of interest-bearing liabilities, that is the money we borrow to pay for all this stuff which incurs interest. So net debt is that amount total at total, less the financial assets that the government, which is us, it has on our behalf, which is cash and deposits and investments and loans and so on. So Treasurer Chalmers should be talking about net debt, not gross debt. When Labor last came to office in 2007, the Howard Costello government had left $40 billion in the till, no debt, 40 billion. By the time Labor had finished, there was $210 billion of debt. The Frydenberg budget in March had net debt at $632 billion, or 27.6% of GDP. Thankfully, it's not a trillion dollars. Chalmers hasn't inherited a trillion dollars of net debt, but nonetheless, he has inherited a spending spree by the coalition in a disproportionate response to the pandemic. So net debt has gone from $491 billion in 2019-20, to two years, 632 billion in 2021-22. The figures are eye-watering, but remember, Labor in opposition nodded its agreement to this splashing around of cash everywhere. So here we are, how do we pay our way? We need to do more than pray, I can tell you. It is you, the taxpayer, business as a taxpayer, which will suffer if government spends and then borrows to fund its spending habits. It's all very well to run popular campaigns, increase the funding to the NDIS, better aged care as recommended by the Royal Commission into Aged Care. We all agree with these things, increased health and child care costs. But here we've got to say now, when the rubber hits the road, who is going to pay? We live in an uncertain geopolitical world. Governments are going to have to increase defence spending. A recent Commonwealth Bank analysis reported this week a 16% lift in ongoing spending since the pandemic. 16% increase. That completely outpaces economic growth. So we're living miles beyond our means. And surely we have to repair the budget, address debt, if we're going to weather na- another major health or financial or defence crisis. But the Coalition's budget in May provided. 18 billion extra spending on aged care, 13 billion, that's 13,000 million extra spending for the National Disability Insurance Scheme, 2.3 thousand million extra for mental health. And from July next year, we've now got Labor's childcare package will cost 5.4 thousand million and it recklessly and amazingly to me increases the childcare subsidy to 90% for the first child in care. 90% you get back for families earning up to, are you ready? Up to $530,000. I'm sorry, we can't afford it. And the Albanese government recently announced an extra 1.4 billion for COVID response measures. There's a push for extended paid parental leave, 600 million to boost women's workplace equity and bonuses for childcare workers We should be in mourning because government spending has ballooned to its highest share of the economy in our history, in our history. Taxpayers are going to be slugged, make no mistake. The Governor of the Reserve Bank hasn't made a lot of sense in the last 12 months, but he did did make sense last week when he said simply, governments can't keep using the national credit card. Our job is to stop asking and then make sure they don't. Let's go to Victoria where it's almost beyond belief that if the polls are right, Daniel Andrews is on track to win a third term in the state election of November 26, which is not far away. This was a poll admittedly conducted at the end of August, but it can't be ignored. The Labor primary vote was on 41% equal to or higher than at any time before the 2014 and 2018 elections. The poll had Daniel Andrews satisfaction rating at 54% higher than at any time before the 2014 or 2018 elections. But the Liberal Party's at 36%. Only 32% satisfied with the performance of the Liberal leader, Matthew Guy, who failed at the last election. Why on earth he's been resurrected, I don't know. But 49% of voters were dissatisfied with the performance of the opposition leader, Matthew Guy. So the two party preferred was 56-44 in favour of Labor. Labor won 55 seats at the 2018 election, compared with 27 for the coalition. There has been a redistribution, which notionally hands a net gain of one seat to Labor and took one off the opposition. There was talk that some momentum had shifted towards the coalition. That was then engulfed in an integrity scandal over a botched pay rise for a former advisor to Matthew Guy. There are 14 key seats that Labor should be at risk of losing but it would appear the coalition has no chance of winning them. What the polls are saying is that in spite of the impossibly undemocratic behaviour by the Andrews government, Daniel Andrews' star is in the ascendant. I'd make two points. Matthew Guy as a leader is hopeless, and that is a handbrake on the coalition. The second point I'd make is that I don't believe the polls in relation to Daniel Andrews and I think something will happen on polling day, which will be a shock to Labor. I'll have more to say about that as we get closer to election day. But one metaphor of the disgraceful behavior by the Andrews government and its instruments, in this instance, the police force, involves the case of the 28-year-old pregnant woman, Zoe Bula, now remember her handcuffed and arrested in her home in September, 2020 in Ballarat, arrested in front of her two young children, just because she created a Facebook post urging people to protest against the draconian lockdowns in Melbourne. A 28-year-old working-class woman in her pajamas, pregnant in front of her two little children, handcuffed and arrested for the alleged serious offence of incitement. She was merely drawing attention via Facebook to the tyranny and denial of freedom embodied in the Andrews Lockdown 2020. The assistant police commissioner then stated that while he regretted the optics of arresting a pregnant woman, he was, quote, absolutely satisfied. The officers acted appropriately and Zoe had engaged in serious criminal behavior, unquote. She had merely urged people to speak up peacefully for freedom. When the matter at the end of August last month went before the magistrates court in Ballarat, facing a, quote, serious criminal offense, the same police who had allowed 10,000 Black Lives Matter protesters to go ahead, the same police last month in the Magistrates Court in Ballarat withdrew the charges, offering no explanation other than it was not in the public interest. In the face of all of this, politicians, police and the media, the establishment, were silent. The one man who regularly took bark off Daniel Andrews is the current member for Q, Tim Smith. You will remember he was the bloke who, let's be frank, and he's admitted to this, committed a grave error of judgment, driving while having drunk too much and crashing into a fence near a home in Hawthorne. Tim Smith offered no excuse for his behaviours, the kind of bloke he took it on the chin. He accepted it was wrong. But instead of putting the bloke on the back bench and letting him do time and be rehabilitated, ready for combat to take the fight up to the Andrews government, instead, he is not a candidate at the next election. It should be said here before I speak to him that on that night when he foolishly drove after drinking, it was the night that he heard that Jane Garrett, one of his closest friends, Labor, had breast cancer, which had spread throughout her body. She died in July at the age of 49. In a condolence motion for Jane Garrett in the Victorian Parliament, an emotional Tim Smith said, there is no one you would want more in a trench with you. She was my inspiration. Jane was my best friend. Tim Smith joins me. Tim, thank you for your time. Uh, No discussion about drinking, because I know you sort of faced up to all of that. Just quickly, uh, how important was Jane Garrett from the other side of politics as a political and personal friend?
1: Look, Alan, I really appreciate you raising Jane because um, she was an inspiration to me. She was my best mate. And you've been around politics virtually all your working life. And you know how these relationships form um, across the chamber. Um, where people can disagree on virtually everything and become the best of mates. And she was the mayor of the city of Yarra when I was the mayor of the city of Stonington way back in 2009-10. And Stonington, for your viewers outside of Melbourne, is basically the whole of the federal seat of Higgins and Yarra is uh, basically Richmond, inner Melbourne, Carlton, Fitzroy, that part of very inner woke Melbourne. And, look, Jane and I disagreed on virtually everything except for democracy And we got on like a house on fire. She was a great mate, she was a great inspiration and I miss her terribly. And Mm. that night I did find out that the cancer had spread and it really hit me hard and I did something particularly stupid. Mm. Did Matthew Guy urge you to remain in parliament and then change his mind? Yes, unfortunately. And that was, and I offered to go immediately. um, And he said, stay. And it's a bit, I literally, to use a cricket parlance, um, he called me through for a run, said yes, and then halfway down the pitch said, no, sorry, no, whoops, I'll, yeah, see you later, mate. And um, that's what happened. And, and there, it, were, it it was... there were a lot of people urging you to stay. Many
0: think that Josh Frydenberg could have done more to publicly support you, but because your seat of Q overlaps with Frydenberg's former seat of Kuyong, didn't Alexander Down or the former foreign minister ring you from London and tell you not to resign? Tony Abbott as well. I made that point many times on this program.
1: Um, Tony Abbott was and remains a, a great personal friend and mentor of mine. Tony Abbott's a legend. He is, uh, there is, uh, as I said in my condolence speech for Jane, there was there is no one else aside from Tony Abbott you would want in the in trench with you than Jane Garrett. Mm. Um, Tony Abbott was as loyal as loyal could be mm. and went publicly uh, into the media and said, uh, Tim Smith must stay. Um, Alexander Downer did ring me from London and basically said make them shoot you in the street, do not go, do not resign. But unfortunately, when the state leader says you're not to contest the next election, uh, the administrative committee basically says you're not going to be re-endorsed, you don't have much choice. Mm. Well, that's a pretty pretty good reason, actually. That's
0: that's a pretty good reason for not voting for Matthew Guy, I've got to say. That is a complete collapse of
1: leadership. As as Boris Johnson said when he resigned, them's the breaks. It is what it
0: is. It is what it is. <laughs> it is, what um, it is. Well, that being said, that being said, where are the Victorian Liberals now? Many see them as a copycat version of Labor. I mean, this was the mess of the federal election. After the federal election, you said, Tim Smith said, quote, the Liberal campaign in Kuyong had no mention aside from Keep Josh. But most importantly, it said nothing about what the Liberal Party stands for that would improve the lives of the people of Kuyong or anywhere else in the years ahead. Uh, that's exactly where the Liberal Party is today, Tim. Uh,
1: that is exactly right, Alan. I, and I made that point the week after the federal election, that one of the reasons why we lost kuyong but indeed one of the reasons why we got thumped all around Australia, is because we gave the voters no reason to give us a very rare fourth term. We had no economic vision. We had no narrative. It was just a piecemeal approach to press releases, politics above policy. Um, this. You know, there was no discernible difference really between the Labor Party and the coalition, and that's federally. And that's before you get to Victoria, where we have a more... The Victorian Liberals have a more extreme emissions reduction target than federal Labor, a 50% legislated emissions reduction target by 2030. We supported a treaty, heavens above. I mean, I had to cross the floor because the Victorian Liberal Party decided they would support a treaty with our own fellow Australian citizens. I rang Jacinta Price and I said, what do you reckon? And she said, no way, you can't support it. And so I, for the first time in eight years, I had to cross the floor because it was wrong. It was also completely illiberal and it was completely absurd too, for a state government to be even thinking about entering into a treaty with its own citizens. Madness, crackers.
0: Mm. Oh, it's good listening to you and very encouraging, but you're a fabulous loss. Look, um, it goes back to Guy, one other thing. He was asked at the Liberal Party State Council, which was only last month, about you. And he said, "I mean, just to the viewers, this is the same bloke who said to the man you're looking at here, you've got to go, you've got to go. Then at the State Council last month, he was asked about uh, Tim Smith and he said, well, he's not a liar. He's a good person. I'm very sad that I lost a friendship. What sort of guy is this bloke? Tim.
1: Oh. What? Just shake your head. Alan, Alan, I just, I don't, I'll be, I'm not often lost for words, mate, but I don't really know what to say because, um, We can't both be lying, that's all I can say. Mm. Where is the Liberal Party challenging the Andrews record?
0: Does the Coalition let the voter forget Andrews' management of the pandemic? I mean, most research shows that on the polling, more than 25% of voters are still undecided. Why wouldn't the Liberals shelve the multi-billion dollar suburban rail link, say, between Cheltenham and Box Hill, and tip that money into the health crisis?
1: Well, I think that... um, Matthew has said that they're going to um, divert some of that money into the health crisis. Um, but I, I take a slightly different view about the basic trajectory that this election is taking, which is why on earth are we making this election a referendum on the health system? Yes. I mean, yes, there is a health crisis. The referendum yes, on there Andrews. Is a problem with Victoria. A referendum Pop- on Andrews. Um, but we need a referendum on Andrews, and we need a referendum on costs of living yes. and economic management. Because heaven above, at the end of the day, if you're going to vote Liberal, or well, you're thinking about taking your vote from Labor to the Coalition, well, we know through you know 70 years of electoral history that the usually the reasons are hit pocket, costs of living, keeping taxes low. That's why people vote Liberal. Hmm. Well, why aren't we talking about that? I mean, I understand that the health that the health system is falling to bits and Labor has been in power for the best part of 20 years in Victoria. So that's their fault, and mm-hmm. we're quite right to call that out. Mm-hmm. But we need, between now and election day, um, a, a tax policy that will, that will repeal at least some of the 42 new or increased taxes that Labor have brought in over the last eight years. Victoria has more debt than New South Wales, Queensland and South Australia combined $180 billion of debt. I mean, this is, when Kennett came in, the state had $36 billion of debt. So, you know, Victoria is drowning in debt. Spending is out of control. The Liberal Party needs a very strong policy on debt reduction, uh, taxes, and cost of living uh, if they stand any hope of winning seats off the Labor Party on the 26th of November. But, but November 26 is only days away. I mean, for example, I just can't cop the lies
0: that are told. I mean, you mentioned the health system. 33 Victorians died after waiting too long for ambulances, but that was between December 2020 and May 2022. There was no coronavirus. They said, oh, this was coronavirus. There's an Inspector General's report. There's Tony Pearce. He delivered the report to the government. It was released by Daniel Andrews on a Saturday morning. Well, not by him, by the, by the Attorney General, where the headlines were about AFL finals. Andrews didn't release it, gave it to the Attorney General. She blamed the failures on the pandemic. I just say all of these things and I look at them,
1: where is the leader? Where is the Liberal Party? Uh, Good question, Alan. Um, This government, the Andrews government, to my reckoning, by its own negligence, has killed 834 Victorians. 801 Victorians through the hotel quarantine debacle that let the virus back out into the community which should never have happened because they used dodgy private security guards instead of Victoria Police and the Army, like every other state in the country. Add 33 deaths caused by the Triple O ambulance dispatch crisis. That's 834 people who have lost their lives directly because of the negligence of the Andrews Labor government. Now, in any other state in the country, that would be, frankly, a death sentence for a third term. Absolutely. Not Victoria, apparently. Absolutely. Well,
0: I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what, we've run out of time tonight, but we're gonna talk to you again next week and we'll resume this discussion. I think it's important for the people of Victoria, a very significant state, important for the people of Melbourne, but it's important for the whole question of democracy and honesty in government. So Tim, while you've got time, I know you're going out of parliament, but keep talking because there are people happy to listen and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you so much, Alan. There he is, Tim Smith, what a loss. He's the only bloke that took bark off Andrews and he's gone from the Victorian opposition. Extraordinary. We'll talk to him again next week because are many other issues, all you Victorian viewers, many other issues that need to be ventilated. There are some interesting observations being made following the grand farewell to Queen Elizabeth. What should be said is that the framers of the funeral, who included the late Queen and the new King, respected tradition, but as Charles Moore wrote, quote, were not hidebound by precedent they chose Westminster Abbey for a monarch's funeral for the first time in nearly 300 years. They knew it could not have been an almost private affair in Windsor because they knew that the Queen through longevity, television and the internet and the beauty of her character had come to belong not only to the country that loved her best, but to the world. Charles Moore is now Baron Moore and a member of the House of Lords. He wrote the authorised biography of Margaret Thatcher, published in three volumes, a tremendous read. But he wrote that the framers of the funeral, quote, will not have been unaware that they were organising what must surely have been the most watched Christian service in the whole of human history, unquote. The President of the United States was an honoured guest, of course, amongst the gathering of world leaders, technically the most powerful man on the planet, but not so when it comes to British royal decorum. The US president and his wife were relegated to Westminster Abbey's rear seats. Protocol dictates that Commonwealth political leaders outrank those from the rest of the world, regardless of their importance. So President Biden found himself 14 rows from the front and nine rows behind uh, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, the neighbour that the US normally looks down upon. I mentioned to you earlier in the week the predicament re-Spain, the disgraced former King Juan Carlos, a distant cousin of Queen Elizabeth, has been living in exile, facing all sorts of allegations and charges at home. His son is now the King Philippe. Spain, the nation, was not impressed by the invitation to King Philippe's father, Juan Carlos. And I told you it was being said, the King would make every endeavour not to have to speak to his father. But it turns out in Westminster Abbey, they were allocated seats next to one another. In contrast to President Biden's seat at the back of the Abbey, all seven surviving British Prime Ministers attended the funeral with their spouses and were seated prominently. The seating arrangements were overseen by Earl Marshall, the Duke of Norfolk, who was in charge of the states, of the funerals occasionally, will have very difficult issues about protocol. The Bidens arrived later than planned, couldn't tell the time, World leaders were supposed to be seated by 9.55am for a service starting at 11. You can imagine the conversation in the intervening hour. President Biden was given permission to travel to the Abbey in The Beast, which is the heavily armour-plated limousine flown over, especially for the occasion. French President Macron was given permission to arrive in his own car. Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau wasn't. They had to bus it which means that long after the Queen's coffin had departed on its journey from Westminster Abbey to Windsor, a gaggle of minor European royalty and others were seen waiting patiently for a bus to pick them up. Britain's former prime ministers left in official cars. But the queue for buses included the King of Spain, the King of the Netherlands, the Crown Prince of Romania, the Queen of Denmark, Jacinda Ardern, Mr Trudeau and his wife, they arrived by bus and they left by bus. After about 20 minutes, brown buses from Westway coaches swept into the area outside the great west door of Westminster Abbey and collected them, by which stage, the most watched Christian service in the whole of human history was itself part of royal history. And in that service, After all the words had been spoken and all the hymns and anthems sung, the Queen's piper played sleep, Deary, sleep. As Charles Moore wrote splendidly of the piper's music, and I quote, as the sound wrapped itself around the soaring Gothic architecture, young Prince George cast his eyes about, trying to trace where it was coming from. Then it grew quieter and more distant as if departing over the hills above Balmoral and everything was at peace. Well, in what's been an extraordinary week, where, as I said, we have seen what must surely have been the most watched Christian service in the whole of human history. Let's go to the political editor of Express Online. I say it every time, but David Maddox, is well worth the read. His insights are spot on because he knows the people who count. You can read David Maddox at express.co.uk, express.co.uk. And he joins me. David, I made reference to Joe Biden and some of these world leaders. Uh, They're seating at the funeral in Westminster Abbey and then waiting 20 (laughs) minutes for the buses afterwards. Biden in the 14th row behind the Polish president because protocol demands that Commonwealth leaders have
2: priority. David, how's how's all this gone down? There's been some wry amusement on this side of the Atlantic, at least about it. Uh, Actually, especially as um, things have developed this week, because, of course, uh, the UN General Assembly is happening as we speak, and uh, uh, and Liz Truss is over in New York. She's actually meeting Biden today, so uh, uh, there's been some toing and froing between them already. Biden doesn't like Liz Truss's tax cutting economics. No. uh I have to say I like Liz Truss's tax cutting economics yeah. on the personal side, but uh as do a lot of people and uh and of course there's a big spat over brexit so you know maybe his positioning at the uh at the big uh, funeral was uh was a yeah. subtle hint to him yeah. but, one know, can only <laughs> wonder though
0: yeah. what, one can only wonder though what the printed word which is attributed to biden uh is really biden's words i mean i imagine when he meets Liz trust he'd have absolutely nothing to say. I mean, the bloke's sort of cognitively in decline. But just come back to him in a minute. Mm. As that funeral procession made its way, I want to ask you this to Wellington Arch, which, as my old man would say, it was a bloody long walk for 73-year-old yeah. King Charles and others, eh? The foreign dignitaries and yeah. senior politicians had to wait for half an hour to allow the full military ceremony to pass before they were allowed to catch the bus. <laughs> I mean... Yeah. Um, you can only speculate what some of these <laughs> people because they all have egos and they think they're the most important person in the Abbey. But this yeah. was agreed to by the Queen along with others. She had oversight of all the details, didn't she?
2: She certainly did. And uh, you know, let let let's uh, let's put it this way: there was only one important person there, and it was the one in the coffin.
0: That's correct. And, That's uh,
2: absolutely you right. Know, uh, uh, that was the. Uh, uh, In fact, uh, my colleague Dan Falvey and I wrote about this, you know, in some ways uh, it put the other world leaders in their place, you know. I mean, after 70 years and a few days on the throne, I mean, I guess that was the least you deserved. Absolutely.
0: But, I mean, Biden and his wife, Jill, uh, they arrived late. I mean, that's inexcusable. Then they had to wait at the entrance Uh to the Abbey and he said, oh, they got caught up in the traffic at Oxford Street, come on, shunted to the 14th row I mean, some of these people with big opinions of themselves wouldn't have enjoyed being bussed from Royal Hospital Chelsea to Westminster Abbey. (laughs) He got there in a presidential limousine. But Donald Trump didn't miss. He claimed that the lowly seat at the funeral was a reflection of how far America has fallen in the last two years since the Democrat administration entered the White House. I think, David, he's got a bit of a point, doesn't he?
2: I, I I would I would struggle to disagree with Adonis on that <laughs> yes, one. I I to say. And, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, he's uh I mean you know and I actually weirdly I think this dates back to the Afghanistan debacle. I'm not sure that uh, I, I you know I'm not sure we quite appreciate yet how much damage that's done to western reputation but particularly to America yeah. standing in the world. Yeah. And uh you know, and the Biden administration has never recovered from that. And, of course, no. now they, no. they've got an, an even worse economic problem than we have. So Absolutely. So it's, it's, you know. It, you know I, I mean, I, I don't see it surviving. I don't see no. it surviving beyond 2024.
0: No, no, no. It's a disaster. I thought the a typical Trump line, Trump said, in real estate, As in politics and in life, location is everything. Location, location, location. Uh, Just on Biden, you have polling, don't you, from the Democracy Institute, which reveals the obvious, of course, that Americans are concerned about Biden and his impact on America's image. That was a survey, what, of 1,500? 71% believed America was heading in the wrong direction, and they were asked to rate Biden's presidency against Trump's. 56% Mm. preferred Trump in the White House and only 42% Biden. Uh, They're revealing figures, aren't they, David?
2: They really are. And uh, what's coming over is a great deal of buyer's regret from the last uh, uh, presidential election. And, you know, for for all this uh, kind of boorish behaviour at times, I think that's the best way of putting it, uh, you know, Trump was quite effective, especially on policy areas, you know, he had the economy in the right place finally he was uh, you know he's got growth going his foreign policy in particular with north korea and uh, uh, and actually some of the middle eastern stuff was far more effective than yes. any of his yeah. predecessors for quite some time and yeah. you know just gone back to the usual malaise and mud with mm. with uh, biden and actually going back to the initial point from our perspective in britain really uh, biden is also really a problem for what we consider to be yeah. the most important alliance of the world, which is UK and US, which underpins Western democracy, underpins Western security, whatever people want to think about the EU and so forth. You know, without the UK and US at the heart of NATO, uh, there's an awful lot of problems, yeah. you know, from Russia and China and Iran yeah. and all the rest of it. Yes. And uh, and Biden seems to be set on trashing it.
0: Yes, I think I think Truss is smart enough to know that he most probably won't be there and, for very long. And of course, come November and yeah. the midterm elections, they may not even control either of the houses. I thought it was nice that in that poll that you talked about, 39% of those polls said they'd like Trump at their barbecue, only 16% Biden. (laughs) I suspect the ones that didn't want Biden were worried about letting him loose, lighting the barbecue. Anything could happen. (laughs) Talking about polls, David, it's interesting to note Mm. the support for the monarchy is up since the Queen's death, 58% Mm. more supportive of the monarchy than they were before. These are significant figures. And and King Charles, I think, has a, a factor in all of this.
2: He does, and, you know, there was a lot of concern here, and I, I'm not sure, I, I suspect it's probably reflected back, back with you guys in yeah, Australia definitely. as well. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, but, one, one, you know, we, we have this amazing 70-year reign, a woman who commanded an awful lot of respect and loyalty, I and mean, there was always this big question mark, what happens when she's gone? And, you know, are, are we going to see a drop-off in support for the monarchy? Could this be the end? Could Charles... King Charles put his foot in it. So far, he's been absolutely fantastic. It was the incident with a pen, but his addresses to Parliament, to the nation, and and so forth has been absolutely spot on. Uh He certainly answered a few concerns about, you know, not getting involved with political issues, mm. which is a bit of a relief. Mm. Uh, and uh it's interesting, I, I think part of it is just realising, with the Queen dying, realising what we had and took for granted
0: yeah, in yeah. the
2: constitutional monarchy. Yeah, yeah. And actually people have realised that they love this institution yes. and it works very well for us. And uh, and certainly events like that funeral, um, which, uh, you know, a sad occasion, but it was, was a magnificent occasion. I mean, mm. absolutely incredible occasion. Mm. Um, it was, and- uh, you know, a reminder of... What it brings to this country. Yes,
0: exactly. And, and that's what that poll is. I mean, you made this point about concerns about what Charles might be. I mean, he would be aware that he was aware that his mother was very important, very keen about the united part of the kingdom that is keeping the kingdom together. Mm. Now, in a short space of time, he addressed the Irish Parliament, the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Parliament, and then very concerned about the Commonwealth. Well, he had a big function for the Mm. Commonwealth heads of government. So he was really honouring the the Queen's legacy very significantly. But I notice in that poll the backing of the UK constitutional monarchy, as you said, was found in every age, every education level and every voting capacity and young adults 18 yes. to 34 55 percent of them more supportive yeah. than they'd ever been
2: yeah which was the surprising part because we wondered if the the, the young adults would yes. actually be you know turning against the monarchy because previous polls had suggested that and uh you know, I, I wonder if it also reflects a, a bit of um, suspicion of our elected politicians and our political classes. Mm. Uh, but at the moment, there's, people don't feel particularly happy with them. Uh, you know, especially, you know, we're all undergoing this uh, terrible cost of living crisis. Yeah. We're not sure about the decisions which are being made. And there was a poll we did a couple of months ago where we asked, you know, when the Queen was still alive, who would you rather was making the decisions? And more than half of them said the Queen. Yeah. You know, and there's, um, that's it. Uh, and I, 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 think, I think, you know, having a constitutional monarchy that's above politics, but uh, it kind of gives people some sort of assurance. Actually, it was a keystone there that uh, will keep at least keep our elected politicians a- in line. Alan, just before
0: you go, I mean, from our perspective, my perspective over here, and I watched the whole of it. Uh, Charles, yes, I think he's been magnificent. What about Princess Anne? Uh, what an extraordinary mm. performance by her with the mother all of the way. Uh, she's always been a very independent person. But to see her re- racked with grief at the passing of her mother, yeah. and she walked behind that coffin at every turn. And I think if you put the King Charles together and the Princess Anne and the William and the Kate and so on, it has brought home how important the monarchy is to Britain's domestic well-being and reputation throughout the world. David, good to talk to you. I've got to say one thing to you, you're a POM. And I've got to say what we're all oh saying here, God. what we're all saying here, no one does it as well as the POMs. And what happened on Monday and went right around the world was a wonderful reflection mm. on the organizational and administrative structure of British administration. Terrific! Well done, David, and congratulations on all of that. Lovely to talk, and we'll talk again next Friends week. On. There he is, David Maddox. David Maddox. Always good to talk to him. And of course, coming up shortly, we've got uh, the Conservative Party convention, so that'll be make an interesting talking point for David, who's got the inside information on all of that. He'll be back with us next week. How many times have we spoken on this program about the crisis in education? It is hard to convince government that there's a crisis. And I'm sorry to say, parents, it's hard to convince you too. Mark Latham and I often talk about what's happening in primary and secondary schools. You ask any primary or secondary school student how many times climate change, welcome to country, and the fear of coronavirus. Ask your 10 year old, your 15 year old, or your 17 year old, how often this stuff is shoved down their throats? Far from their learning being educational, it is overtly political. Well, what then about universities? That same indoctrination I might add goes on there, but recently and alarmingly, we have learnt something far worse. A ghost writer who allegedly has completed thousands of assignments for cashed up students across Australia's major universities has blown the whistle. And it appears that a Chinese company is at the centre of a vast academic cheating scheme. The whistleblower is a Kenyan who has asked to remain anonymous out of fear of reprisals. But he has said that he's a ghostwriter for a Chinese company called Assignment Joy. Joy indeed for the bludging students who steal their academic piece of paper. But I feel a bit sorry for the Kenyan for a 1000 word assignment he gets $149. I reckon he's worth a bit more than that, but of course it is cheating. What is handed in as the student's work has been fraudulently written. And for this piddling $149 for a thousand words, the Kenyan whistleblower says he has written assignments for bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, students in in fields including nursing, health, science, education, psychology, business administration for almost every major Australian university. I know what you're thinking. This Kenyan must be smart. He receives these orders just like you'd buy a shirt off the rack. He then completes the assignment for students, he has said, at the University of Sydney, University of Melbourne, University of Queensland, University of South Australia, Macquarie University, Torrens University, as well as several TAFEs. And the ghostwriter said he knows about 50 other writers in the field, including several whom he had subcontracted to do assignments for him. According to a splendid piece by Rhiannon Down, this is a multimillion dollar industry, employing thousands of people across Kenya and South Africa because one, their proficiency in English, and two, low labor cost. Chinese foreign students, are apparently 60% of the market, along with foreign students from Malaysia and countries which don't have good English. So they get someone else to write the assignment for them and pay them. And this is a Chinese company, Assignment Joy. They unashamedly describe themselves as an essay writing service, which, quote, specialises in universities in Britain, Australia, the US, New Zealand and Canada, unquote. It further says and mentions, quote, many good universities in Sydney and quote, if your Chinese friends have homework that you can't write or don't have time to write, you can come to us for papers, unquote. I'm just thinking of all the time I wasted digging in university libraries to try and impress my lecturer or my tutor. I could have washed a few cars, drummed up $149 and let someone do the worrying and the thinking. I mean, we can't be serious, can we? But this cheating apparently is rampant. This outfit, Assignment Joy, Chinese outfit, advertises, quote, Australian thesis writing. Now, if you're doing a PhD, it's $60 for 250 words. The company, Assignment Joy, says, quote, often a good paper is the key to your success, so choice is more important than hard work. In other words, we're here to do the work for you. Apparently, students opt to hand over their login details to their university portal and the ghostwriter handles all the demands of the course. Assignment Joy gathers all the relevant material, lecture slides, essential reading, the set of instructions for the assignment, and an order form outlining the word limit, all done by email. I went to their website today, Assignment Joy Don't Beat Around the Bush, quote, we are good at various professional assignment, essay paper and dissertation writing services. Our papers promise to be 100% original, 100% punctual, and 100% superb. Our writers are from all local colleges and universities. The editorial team has never been stronger, unquote. There you are. One of the ghost writers addressed the assignment, diet and nutrition for health and sport. Once he got through all the security verification, which is fairly straightforward, especially if you're cheating, (laughs) he downloaded the information required, quote, to discuss the energy demands, this was the assignment, to discuss the energy demands of an elite level athlete using, quote, comparison data on the average Australian and the elite athlete. I'll tell you something, that's worth more than $149. But the ghostwriter submitted the completed 2,500 word paper via email the next day, an invoiced assignment joy for US $133 for his work. Doesn't this then bring us back to the crisis? Cheating to get a degree, and we've got no idea how many people are behaving in this way, but we can be sure it's not a few. The University of Sydney has said it will investigate and quote, we take all investigations of academic misconduct seriously. That is a joke response. Let me be blunt. The University of Sydney has an academic staff of 3,514. It has an administrative staff of 4,631. That's 8,000 plus staff and it can't prevent this stuff. And you know why it can't? Learning and teaching as we used to know it don't exist. It should be easy to address the issue. The lecturer or tutor says, Mr. Smith, I note your assignment here on the energy demands of an elite level athlete. May I ask you a few questions? Within two minutes, you'd know that Mr. Smith hadn't written what had been submitted. Not only are there thousands of students cheating, but there are sadly thousands of university academics and administrative paper shufflers not doing their job. Before we go, if there's one man Australian should be listening to when it comes to Anthony Albanese's push for an Indigenous voice to the parliament, it is the proud Indigenous Australian, Warren Mundine. His outstanding op-ed in the Australian Financial Review from yesterday speaks for itself. Warren asked, quote, can woke corporates tell us what the voice will achieve? Unquote. And of course his answer was a resounding no. Warren wrote, I quote, my plea to the Australian business community is to stop seeing this campaign as easy ESG points. This is the latest thing in business, there's ESG. It's got to be environmental, social and governance. These criteria have to be met, environmental, social and governance criteria. Crap, it's crap. But as Warren said, sit down with Indigenous people. This is a corporate Australia, he said, sit down with Indigenous people who oppose it and try to understand why. He said, the Australian business community is clearly behind The Voice, but can any of them explain what The Voice is or what it will achieve? He said, how will it end violence in remote communities, lift disadvantaged Indigenous people out of poverty, or deliver economic prosperity? Says Warren, how will it inform government decision-making any better than the vast number of Indigenous organisations and individuals who already advise government and even design policy, unquote. Well, I mean, corporate Australia couldn't care less. Oh no, suck up to government. Well, Warren, as I have often said, it won't achieve any of those things. Anthony Albanese's Indigenous voice will do nothing to reduce the prevalence of syphilis in Aboriginal communities where underage Aboriginal girls are 60 times more likely to contract the disease than their non-Aboriginal counterparts. It won't address the fact that Indigenous people between 15 and 24 are almost four times more likely to commit suicide than non-Indigenous people of the same age. The Voice won't address the fact that the 43,000 Australians in jail in 2019, almost 12,000 were Aborigines. How about the fact that Indigenous women experience sexual assault at six times the rate of non-Indigenous women? Albo's Indigenous Voice will do nothing except put race into our constitution. How about the fact that Indigenous women are 45 times more likely to experience domestic violence than white women? The Voice won't do anything to address this. It won't do anything to address why Indigenous unemployment rates are three times the non-Indigenous rate. The short point? The Albanese government's top policy proposals since the May election is useless. It won't help our Indigenous brothers and sisters who are struggling and it is distracting the country from the real issues we are facing at the moment. You think about it. Right now, our manufacturers are being paid your money not to produce anything just so that we can keep the lights on. There's not enough energy. Power prices have risen by 890% in the last 18 years. The Chinese are trying to build military bases a few thousand kilometres from our shores. Our farmers are going broke due to skyrocketing skyrocketing fertiliser prices, because of course, fertiliser is a product of fossil fuels. Rising interest rates and inflation are sending hundreds of thousands of households broke. And the best our new Prime Minister can come up with is a pathetic virtue signal that will do nothing to help ordinary, hardworking Australians. Well, that's it for me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is up next. Sadly, no programme tomorrow night. We must honour the Prime Minister's granting of a National Day of Mourning. Though, as you know, I would have preferred to honour the memory of a very hard-working Queen Elizabeth by working hard tomorrow. But that's not to be. So I'll be with you next Monday night at 8 o'clock. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.